Well, if you have a Bible, can you turn to the book of Hebrews? And chapter, the end of chapter 4 is where we're going to pick it up today. And I don't know if any of you guys um, identify with this, with, with the fact that I feel like the older I get, I'm the age of 37 now, the older I know, the older I get, I guess... <laughs> <laughs> I know, some of you are thinking, you say, he's a young boy. And some of you are thinking, really? He's ancient. Um, the older I get, on a serious note, I, I feel like I do become more and more aware of what you would, I guess, call your kind of failures. And, and some of those are things that are, are kind of real, things which you think, I didn't do great on that. Some of them are things you don't feel great on, and perhaps they're not actually failures, but... But the older I get, the more I become aware of my, my weaknesses, my limits, um, I guess disappointments. You know, your body starts to fail you a little bit, even at my young age. You know, it's just like the older you get, I think you become, not in a depressing way, but in a real way, I think just aware of how maybe decisions that you made, you think, oh, I just rushed that a little bit, or I don't know, at times you can have regret kind of creeping into your life a little bit. And I think it's fascinating that that as you follow Jesus, that tends to happen, I think. That you, you become more and more aware of your fragility and what we might actually often call our, our failures, speech marks. You know what I'm saying? They might not literally be failures. Sometimes they are. But under that umbrella term, I think that's something that often, if not always, actually happens. And, and what's fascinating about this bunch of Christians that we're looking at in the book of Hebrews is today we find, yet again, as we look at them, that I think that they would have identified with that. We've been making the point again and again that it's clear that perhaps the biggest, the biggest thing going on in their life is that because they're following Jesus, their cultural background of Judaism is now, as it were, being more and more that they're becoming marked not so much by being a Jew, but by being a Christian. And what that means is those who were their friends and their family around them, it seems, are actually not so supportive, but in actual fact are we might call them persecuting them. The people they've grown up with, the friends around them, their work colleagues, are not so much supportive of what's happening, but they are facing a very real cost because they're following Jesus. And therefore, they would have felt like, actually, the things in my life that often I, I felt successful through, my marriage, which is now in tatters because I'm following Jesus and my wife doesn't get it and she's turned her back on me. My workmates, which I used to feel so close to, now actually because I'm a Christian actually and I'm making that choice, they don't get it and they don't like it actually because my values are different. And, and the areas where they would have felt strong and successful, as we, as we meditate week upon week, for them the cost of following Jesus where everything falls away, I think that they would have felt very much like I am more and more feeling in my life. And it's not just through... The circumstance that they would have felt like that. What we heard last week from Jeff, let me remind you of the final verse he read. Verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, it says, verse 12 and 13, For the word of God, that's Jesus, but also the Bible, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Verse 13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it's not just that they would have felt, like many of us, more and more aware of their weaknesses and like, actually, I kind of feel like I'm failing or things are difficult. It's not just that because of their persecution and difficulties around them. Even when they read the Bible, it seems, 
the word of God, has this effect on them and us of making us feel naked and exposed. You could say fragile, weak. More and more. If you are increasingly in your Christian life feeling more and more naked and exposed and fragile and weak, this is, this is telling us that that's actually a good thing. But it feels very uncomfortable. Now, this is, the, this is the point. What I'm trying to say is, through either life or, should we say, God, you will end up more and more in your life feeling like that. I'm not having to prophesy that from out here. I know it because of the Bible and I see it everywhere. This is the million-dollar question. Please focus if you're going to zone out in the next half an hour. It's fine. Focus for now. It's the next 10 seconds. You're going to end up in that place. Most of us already know that we are either in it or we stay in that place. We're familiar with that place of weakness and fragility. The million-dollar question is, what do you do when you're in that place? How do you react when you're in that place? Because what we're going to see is this, is that fundamentally, really, there's only actually kind of two choices. The first choice is that effectively, because following Jesus makes us feel like that, we can actually more and more kind of subtly shy away from truly following him and effectively go to coping mechanisms to make us feel okay. Or the second choice is that actually we stay close to Jesus despite that increasing feeling of fragility, weakness, and that feeling of almost being more naked and exposed. But ultimately, we have a deeper feeling of nearness to Christ amidst that. When, we, when we're in that place of feeling more and more like we're describing, there are only two real options. It either becomes about coping or about Christ. Do you see? That's all the only two options that there really are. And what I want us to understand is, is that the writer to the Hebrews knows this. And what he wants us to understand, and we're going to look at this image of a high priest, which for most of us doesn't, I think at first you think it's strange. Bear with me because it, I think it will blow your mind the more you meditate on this amazing image. When you're in that place of feeling like that, and I've just personally, the last few weeks, I've felt more and more just like, you know those times where you just feel like almost everything you touch it just goes a bit rubbish? Or things that you thought were going to go one way suddenly don't. And you think you've done everything you can to control it to go this way. And you're thinking, I, fe- I actually functionally feel like I've kind of failed a bit in that area. Even though I know I kind of maybe haven't. I'm feeling like that. And what he wants us to understand when we're in those places is that the high priest that we're going to look at today, the bigness of this high priest for us, is not so much about him being strong, which is what we looked at two weeks ago. Do you remember the whole thing of influence? And I was saying, this great high priest, the idea of the high priest was that he represented you when you were in trouble. You went to the high priest and he took care of it. He took responsibility. He was strong. He was amazing. He was the one who actually sorted it out. The image that we're going to come now to this high priest is not so much about his strength, but his sympathy. His sympathy. And for some of you, thinking sympathy great so when I'm feeling like I'm failing this is about sympathy don't switch off because I believe that when you truly catch a revelation of the depth of the sympathy of our high priest our Jesus my word does it change everything so let's read the next few verses with those lenses on looking at it in the way that I hope I've set us up for verse 14 of chapter 4 so they're feeling 
He's right to them. They felt naked, exposed. They're weak. They're fragile. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts, sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so also Christ He didn't exalt himself to be made high high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And also he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, thank you, you're here. And you're kind and you're gentle and you're more just, Lord God, oozing sympathy than we will ever understand. And come today, Lord God, and I pray minister to us. I pray reveal the bigness of your sympathy to us. Lord, so that when we feel, Lord God, like, you know what, I feel a bit of a failure, I feel a bit rubbish. Lord God, that we are quick to run to you rather than anywhere else. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to bring out two aspects of the bigness of Christ's sympathy. Two things. Number one, that it's gentle. And number two, that it's genuine. It's gentle and it's genuine. So first of all then, I want us to taste the bigness of this sympathy and the fact that it's really, really gentle. See, in verse 2, we've just read it of chapter 5, talking about this priest, it says this, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, the idea that um, the writer to the Hebrews is doing here, that the thing that he's doing is, in these verses, he's trying to use a picture Uh, a thing that they are familiar with, this priesthood idea, because he wants them to understand if they can get that, Jesus is a bit like that. It's so kind. There's such a a kindness to the way the writer is writing. He wants to get right down to their level, as it were, to help them. Everything else, remember, in their life has been stripped away. They don't have comfortable lives like me and you, you know, where everything's basically normally going okay. They've got nothing. And so he's deeply, deeply concerned in a right way that they would taste and see and so what he does is he starts with this with this a a, a familiar ground for them the priesthood they've grown up with it maybe they're in their 30s or 40s and for all those decades they had been used to going to the priest the priesthood was a huge part of their culture and it was something that was profoundly important to them and he says to them do you remember he says when you think about your priest right number one they can deal gently not just with everyone, not just with the, not just with the impressive people in your society, but with the ignorant 
and the wayward. That fills me with joy. The older I get, the more I realise how ridiculously ignorant I am and how limited my knowledge is and how wayward my soul can be so quickly. It's, it's unbelievable. The older I get, the more I realise how in one moment I can be saying huge things about my apparent love for God and then within a heartbeat, my heart's affections are just in this place over here. And, and it says, remember the priests, that they had a sympathy, a gentle sympathy for the ignorant and the wayward. Not just the, the Rolls Royce people in the society, but for people like you and for me. They had sympathy and they were gentle because they themselves were beset with weaknesses. I love that phrase. It's like even in the Old Testament, the model of leadership in the Bible has always been about weakness. It's always been about weakness. You understand that. If you watch TV, if you watch all the discussions about who should lead, lead the Labour Party or anything, in your, if you're a teacher or if you're in a workplace of any kind, you will be giving a different model for what leaders should be like. Leaders should be strong. They should have the answers. They should be able to be brilliant orators. They should have strategy. They should be consistent. They shouldn't mind people poking their noses into every, every area of your life. It's a strength thing. And what we saw is even in the Old Testament, these priests, I love this picture, they were beset with weaknesses. They weren't there because they were impressive, is what he's saying. They were called. They were like, what? Me? I can't. Yes, you can. And that was the model that God had put in place for them. He made it so easy for them to understand. And right now, for some of you, to be honest with you, you're not feeling particularly in a place of like aware of your failures. Life, maybe for you, is quite good. And you're feeling quite strong. And that life is quite sweet. And that's good. And that's fine. But just wait. Just keep living a little bit longer. Because it says, doesn't it, in verse 16 of the previous verse, that we approach this throne that we'll talk about, listen, when? In our time of need. And my experience is, I find more and more that the time of need is all the time. (laughs) I really do. I'm not just saying that. I really feel it. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I feel my need. And it's not like this occasional once a month thing when I've just had a rubbish week. It's like, wow, there's this really weird paradox going on. The kingdom's getting bigger in my heart. I'm getting nearer to Jesus. And yet I feel like I'm more needy and more fragile and more humanly pathetic than ever. And he says that. So if, you, if you're thinking, oh, this sympathy talk, oh, just keep living. And this might come back to you one day when suddenly you feel a little fragile. Because if, you're in, if you've been in that place where you feel like this, like these guys would have felt fragile, naked, exposed, everything's fallen away, all the things I put my hope in, my friendships, my, 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 my comfort blankets, I've just gone. Listen, if you're in that place where you're feeling that fragile, there is a few things worse than going to someone for sympathy and actually experiencing almost anything but. It's horrible, isn't it? I remember a year ago in the middle of my sabbatical where God was just taking me apart. Totally, every little nut, bolt and screw. And I I made an appointment to go and see this amazing church leader in another part of the country. And bless him, when I met with him, he didn't quite pick up the vibes of where I was at. Can I say that humbly? And the first four hours were him just sort of touring me around his building, showing me all these exploding, amazing, fruitful things. And, just, and, and, and I was just like, mm, great, brilliant, really good. And I was just like, you know, am I even a Christian? You know, I'm like, am, I, am I, Jesus, I just, oh, I love, I just want to be close to you. And I remember, and it wasn't his fault, but he really misread it. And it was, it was all, you know, it was just painful and exhausting. And, you know, when you're in that place, 
When you're in that place, he's saying, listen to you, you know the priest you went to. He's trying to remind you, remember the priest? They weren't like that, were they? They were gentle. They were kind. It's almost like father figure types of your community. They set the tone for your community. There was a gentleness. There was a a wonderful sense of this. And, And actually, I think just knowing someone else gets it. Just gets it. Doesn't try and solve it, just gets it. It's unbelievable how powerful that is. Me and Josie, we've been meditating on 2 Corinthians for months. We can't move on from it together because it's, if you don't know the book, it's just like the weakest, beautiful, wonderful, liberating thing about embracing your weaknesses. And it just frees you from feeling life should be another way. This pressure we feel of, like, well, surely if I'm loving Jesus and I'm praying, then my life should be like, well, not necessarily. And I actually personally only really connect with someone when, they're able, when they actually do let me in. And that's the cult. He's saying, do you remember these priests? That's the that These gentle priests who were beset. With, I love this picture. And he's saying to them, do you remember these guys that have shaped your community and the flavor of your community? And then what we realize, of course, is that in a heartbeat, everything's changed. Because these priests who were in theory so gentle, were now in a, at least in part responsible, of course, for their rejection. It's clear that these, these, these Jew Christians, who are now more Christian than Jew, actually, it's clear that actually the things that they would have enjoyed going to the temple, it's very likely they were probably not allowed to the temple anymore. The people who would have opened the door, there's my priest, hey! The ones that they'd shared their lives with, the ones that they'd confessed to. I mean, that's a deep thing, right? To confess to a priest year upon year. The ones that they'd shared their hearts with, it seems, hadn't understood their becoming a Christian. And it seems very likely that actually they would have been at least in part responsible for the persecution that they're facing. That's why this whole book's being read. The ones, the whole community has turned against them. Do you understand? Now this is massive for us. Because the reality is, actually, we can all be a little like that, can't we? I know I can normally, hopefully, be oozing some kind of sympathy for my daughters, as an example. But when I'm tired, if I'm grumpy, it's, it's, it, I hate to say it, but there's times where I can be snappy and grumpy. And when I should respond with sympathy, I don't. And what we, what we learn from this is, is clearly, look, for you, you probably don't go to a priest for your, your place of gentle sympathy. But the point is, wherever you go, other than Jesus. Listen, wherever you go, any counterfeit place of sympathy and comfort will ultimately slam the door in your face at some point. Wherever you go, be it friends, family, TV, food, sex, name the list, alcohol, wherever you might go ultimately to a human or to other place for some sense of, oh, I'm okay. Just as these priests, it seemed, would have shut them out of the community, the place they'd gone to, and I've seen this, I've seen this even recently with people I love who have gone to, they've ultimately made a good thing, a God thing, and it becomes illegitimate. And that's their whole life is based around this one thing. And it can screw up whole lives. And that's what he's warning. He's saying, no, 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 look, these guys were good. They, they were okay. But this high priest that now you're coming to know, this one that actually you're following has meant that you've lost everything humanly to follow, this 
great high priest, not just a high priest, but this great high priest, he is gentle in a way that is absolutely unfathomably greater than any other person you can go to. Look, remind you of the words that we've read. It says here in verse 15 of the previous chapter, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Do you see, he's saying, unlike those who, when you went to, to say, hey, priest Jim, I need to tell you what's happened. I've met the Messiah. What? No, you haven't. He's not real. No, 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 I really think, no, no, no. Get out. You're not allowed here anymore. And he's saying, no, no, this high priest, he's different, hallelujah. He is, he is not unable to understand things. He is oozing. That's why Exodus 34 says about God, says the Lord, the Lord, he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. This Jesus that he's calling them to go, he's never ignorant or wayward like you or I. There's never a point at which this high priest has an off day. There's never a moment where his heart is suddenly actually irritated by you. It's breathtaking. This high priest is weak. He was human, Jesus, totally weak, but never, never sinful. And what this means is, because, because he was human, and because he's God, it means he is always gentle. He's always gentle when we come to him. You see, it says in verse uh, 7 of chapter 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. That's another word for prayers. <laughs> prayers and prayers. With loud cries and tears. Now think about that. Why is that here? He wants you to understand this God that we come to. He wants us to understand. What's that saying? That is saying Jesus was fully human. Loud cries and tears. That's talking about Gethsemane. That's talking about Jesus at that moment in his life where he was probably most aware of his humanity. Where he was most aware of it. And this is the profound thing. Is that what this says is that Jesus suffered even more than you or I will ever suffer. How do we know that Jesus is always gentle towards us? Because, you see, when you suffer, when you've been through feeling like a failure or fragile in general, and you know that, what happens is, is your heart actually changes. You become someone that others want to come to when they feel like that. Because you get it. When you go through those times, you, you do change. It's, it's awful at the time, I know, but what happens is you become actually more like this high priest, this Jesus. And because Jesus went through loud cries and tears, because he suffered, because his soul was experiencing actually infinitely greater pain and difficulties, that actually we know his soul is gentle. He is a high priest who is not, it's not like he's, and this is the amazing thing, is in a sense Jesus even now still carries the heart of Gethsemane even in eternity. That is amazing! It's amazing to think that the, Jesus, and I don't get this, Jesus in eternity now, he is infinitely joyful, of course, because he's with the Father. But there's a sense in which when he looks upon the six billion people on this earth and he sees a broken world that is not as it should be, the Bible tells us that God is deeply, ongoingly affected. There's a sense in which he carries something of the suffering that we see here in his flesh, even now in eternity. You see, we think... Man, my difficulties, they're real, they're, they're tangible. And they are, and they're here, and they're in our little life. But then we 
pull back with the Bible and we see this picture of as God, a man of sorrows, acquainted. And there's no doubt his heart is still bleeding for this world now. It hasn't all yet been made perfect, has it? And, and when you understand this is the God of the Bible, a God who ongoingly now, in a sense, suffers with us. In fact, suffers beyond us. This changes how we walk through this life. Do you understand that? This, was one of, this is the great secret of what so many of the great men and women who have even gone to their deaths for the faith have understood. If you've been reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer recently, amazing German pastor and scholar, and he was living in the comforts of America just when great, the Second World War broke out. And God said to him, I want you to move right back into Germany. And he knew that would mean almost certain death. And God, God started to use him to build up a resistance against Hitler. And eventually, uh, Dietrich was, was sent to a concentration camp where he experienced unimaginable horror and ultimately was martyred for his faith. But the point was is that, that he was someone who understood that the God he prayed to was a God who, in a sense, suffered with him and, in fact, more than him. And it actually enabled him and to see his sufferings, as real as they were, in the perspective of a God who carries the weight of the pain and the difficulties and the failures and the sin and the, all the difficulties of this world in his heart still. It wasn't like God had had a bit of pain on earth and now gone back to heaven and was like, oh, I'm just having a party up here. Because you see, if you secretly think God is like that, you won't draw near to him in your time of need. If that's how you imagine the Trinity, it's just this high-fiving kind of, you know, frat party that's just going on. It's like, oh yeah, they're just having a party. No, no, if you don't see and understand the nuance of the Trinity... That there is a sense in which we can draw near to the throne of grace. It's like when we, when we come and we say, Jesus, I'm going through these things and I feel fragile and weak. When we come to this place, it's like he jumps off his throne with tear-stained face saying, I've already been weeping with you, come to me. It's not like he stands there going, I don't understand. The God of the Bible is a God who feels intensely the things that we feel, in fact, infinitely more. And what that means is we can know he will always be gentle. He'll never be one of those nightmares that you may have experienced and I can sometimes be when someone just needs gentle sympathy with them and actually what we bring is some kind of pumped up action man thing because our life right now is going well. And what he's saying is, where are you drawing near to in your life? Are you drawing near to this one who is like that? Are you drawing near to him, this throne of grace? The one who is always, always so kind. You see, the reality is we shouldn't be able to go near to a throne of grace. It's scandalous to read that, isn't it? To say, I, as a human, evil, sinful person, can come near to the God of the universe. How on earth can I approach a throne? Well, because actually... Jesus himself took our place. He experienced all of the righteous punishment that we should have experienced at the cross. He went through a hellish experience so that you and I can ongoingly taste more and more of heaven. That's our high priest. And so today I just felt for some of you, as I was praying about this, this first point, this, that actually... <laughs> You've been going to different places rather than Christ. When you've been walking through these places of fragility and weaknesses and just feeling aware of those things, you've actually more gone to coping 
mechanisms rather than to Christ. And the problem is, is that that will, only Christ will keep your heart soft. Only Christ. And what can happen, and I see it in my life, if I'm not going to Christ when I'm feeling tested by God, I myself become a little hard on others. That's my telltale sign. Unless I'm drinking from the one whose heart is always soft, this high priest who's always in touch with the pain of the world, unless I'm constantly living there more and more, what happens if I go to coping mechanisms, I'm I'm getting through it, but I'm actually not drinking deeply from that soft-hearted priest's fountain of grace and mercy. And so then I have nothing to give with my kids or with my wife or with the staff or with my non-Christian friends. And I just felt lovingly the Father would say to you that today he's saying there's only those two options. It's either coping or Christ. And he wants you today, even in a minute when we respond with worship, just to run quickly to this high priest who's so gentle. But he's not just gentle. It gets even more amazing. He's also so genuine. And you see, he touches upon this in the next verse. We've looked at verse 2 of chapter 5. But then he says about this high priest, because he's set with, he is beset with weaknesses, verse 3 of chapter 5, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, when, when we read this, he's now transitioning, do you see, from talking about weaknesses in the priest. Now he's talking about actual sin. And when I read this, you see, at first, I quite, I quite like that verse. I think, oh, yeah, that's cool. The priest was sinful, and he understood sin, right? And in fact, if I'm honest, I can sometimes read it, and I don't know if any of you would dare to agree with me, but when I think about Jesus, who it says previously he's never sinned, right? I think, well, surely the priest then, the human priest, would have more sympathy for me. I'd feel more relaxed with him because he kind of gets the sin thing, whereas Jesus has never sinned. And we can almost see that as a positive thing. And I think in a way, it's meant to be like that because he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. The idea was that as well as hearing your problems or your, your, your confession and offering a lamb, he would also in that transaction need to offer a sacrifice for his sin. And at one level, we can find that an encouragement, right? And he's saying, remember the priests, they, they got what it was to be a sinful person. But the more I thought about this, the more I meditated on this, the more I realized that actually, do you know what? It's not such good news. You see, first of all, if your leaders are those who are just ongoingly sinning, what it can actually do is lead to what is, to be honest with you, pretty common in this nation, which is saying that to be a Christian just means it's about being forgiven. Just about being forgiven. Don't worry if you never actually grow in your faith. You can always get forgiveness. That's not a new perversion of the gospel it's very old but it's incredibly common and it sounds good because what it means is just talk about your weaknesses all the time talk about your sin and 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 therefore it's fine because Jesus has made me forgiven right almost sounds like the gospel but it's actually not the whole gospel at all because to be a disciple is a lot different from just being forgiven it starts with being forgiven but to follow Jesus guess what means you actually change It means that the the things that used to control you, the sinful patterns, you break and you move into increasing freedom. You're never without sin, of course. There is a sense in which this side of going to glory, ultimately there's always going to be those things. But there's a massive counterfeit gospel 
just to be aware of, which is actually, well, because they just talk about sin all the time and their own weaknesses, then, okay, so it's about being forgiven. It isn't just about being forgiven. It's actually about being a child of God, about being a disciple, about being someone who grows. Hallelujah. It's actually a positive thing. And you can settle for this kind of quasi-Christianity if it's just unforgiven. And I don't want that for you. Because God wants you to grow and to change and to be a Christ follower, not someone who just stays at the start line. Just about forgiveness. Well, no, it's, it's bigger than that. Actually, we are forgiven so that we can be adopted. And when you're adopted, it's about being a child who becomes like their dad. And that's what he's saying here. So that's one thing here which is just to be aware of. But the far more sinister thing is this, is this, listen, if these priests were actually sinful, what it means is, is that on the surface of it, when you approach them at your most vulnerable moment, you're going to confess to them. On the surface of it, of course, they would have been full of sympathy. But internally, because they were sinful, there would have probably been two internal things going on. If they were feeling good and they'd had a good week, they would have been very prone to internally actually being smug. In you come, here's the high priest. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Inside, they're thinking, <laughs> I didn't do that. I've had a great week. I've read my Torah loads. It's a loser. On the surface of it, it's all sympathy. Or maybe they had a rubbish week, and in comes the person to confess their sin. It's not about being smug. It's this time, it's they're using it for like therapy. Oh, good, they're sinful as well. Oh, it's okay then. Do you understand? So actually, either way, as leaders, they can easily have been using this confession, either way, for a, a form of self-righteousness, making them feel good in their own, in their own selves. And the reason I'm so confident this would have been occurring is because I see it in my heart. There you go. I'll be honest. I do. And I hate it. I'm not a priest. <laughs> well, I am. We all are. But as Christians. But I'm a leader. And sometimes people say things to me. And I can see it in my own heart. This awful tendency to rejoice when someone's mourning. Or to mourn when someone's rejoicing. That doesn't always happen. There are those moments in my life where I actually get it right and I'm like Jesus. And I'm, but it, please help me. Tell, when you hear that someone's doing so brilliantly well in an area where you're not, perhaps I don't rejoice with them always. I can often be envious. My heart is wayward, as we've heard. And what we have to understand is, is that this is what he's getting at here. These, these priests who they loved and apparently had a genuine sympathy for them, actually in their hearts, it wasn't ultimately genuine. It couldn't have been completely genuine because they were humans. And what he wants to do is then contrast that. He's saying, listen, wherever you go in your life, for those, that sympathy, that sense of encouragement and consolation, maybe it's about, it could be, I don't know, you go to being approved and knowing that people like you. It could be about being in control. That's another one I see in my soul an awful lot. Maybe it could be about winning and being the best or whatever it is. When you're in those places where you're feeling like a fragile person and God's testing you, you can easily run to what seem like genuine places of encouragement and actually they're fake. They're not real. They're like that priest in that sense. On the surface of it, there's a certain level of sympathy and encouragement you meet in the instant get. But beneath it, he's saying it's not real. And then in contrast, what he says is, listen, lift your gaze, O oh people, to this amazing great high priest 
who is the same inside as he is on the outside. Hallelujah. He isn't just on the surface of it some smiley nice dad figure who actually internally is either using you for therapy or actually smug because he thinks he's done better. This Jesus, his heart is overflowing with agape love is what the Bible says. This supernatural heaven love that doesn't make any sense and we can hardly even comprehend. It's an extraordinary love is what he's saying. And there's few things in this life more devastating than when you've opened your heart up to someone in that place of vulnerability, like they would have done with these priests. And actually, maybe you've done it with your friends even at times. And then you find out that actually they've almost used that information. Maybe they've told someone else. I don't know, maybe these priests were even in some way guilty of that, gossiping amongst themselves. What did you hear? Did you hear what she said to me? It was unbelievable. And what he's trying to say is he's trying to provide a contrast For them, it was about priesthood. For us, it will probably be different. But for anywhere that we go, that we are leaning on in our lives as a place of replacement, sympathy and love and support other than Jesus is ultimately going to break. It won't be strong. It won't be real. It's not genuine. Jesus is the only place, the only one who genuinely we can put our trust in. And again, he wants us to trust him. And that's why he includes details like verse 7. Again, here it says, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Listen to him who was able to save him from death. Can I ask you a question? Did Jesus die? He did. I'd never seen that line until this week. He's saying, Jesus prayed his heart out to the one who could have saved him from death. He had the power, the Father, to say, actually, let's scrap this. It says about Jesus when he was in that moment, he said, Lord, Lord, if there's any other way that's code for from a human point of view, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. And yet what we hear is, is that actually in this sense, the Father did not give him the answer that he was asking. What he said was, in effect, I will support you, son, through it. And you will taste death, but it will not have lasting dominion on you. You will be raised, but you will still face death. Now this, this blows me away. Because this is, you see, if, if what the writer is trying to do is say you can trust this high priest, he's even including this detail about his prayer life so that you and I would go, what you're saying that Jesus prayed for something that didn't actually happen in the way that he was asking, yes! Now, in his sinlessness, of course, he was utterly, gloriously happy to obey the Father and follow him. It wasn't like there was a discrepancy amongst them. This is the mystery of the Trinity. But there's no doubt that this is in here to say he was asking the Father. And ultimately, what that means is when we are in that place of of saying, God, I've come to the throne of grace. I've asked you about this thing and something's not happening. This thing isn't changing. I still feel weak. I still feel fragile. I'm still not growing. I still haven't seen breakthrough. He's saying, I get that. I understand the mystery. Even Jesus understands what it's like to come to the Father and ultimately not get the answer that he thought or was expecting. And that's why he says, I want you, verse 16 again of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We come near confidently because it is a throne not of fickleness. It's not a a throne of of judgment. It's not a throne of aggression. It's a throne of grace. A throne 
of grace that Jesus ran to. He ran to, and he now is there, and he now calls us to live in that place. And, and for some of you, for some of you, the issue of trust and people that you thought were genuine and haven't been genuine, you still bear the real scars of that. You do. Is that in your life, even today, you want to trust. But honestly, you find it very hard. Perhaps it was a dad or a mum or someone close to you. And actually, they've been a bit like these human priests who seemed genuine and they weren't. And you can almost project that onto this Jesus. Can I really, really make myself that vulnerable? Can I really trust him with everything of my heart? And today he's calling out to you to say, I, I want in on your soul. I want in. I want, I want to become big. I want to become the only person that ultimately you run to. I want to be the person that ultimately you, you give all of your heart to. So my question as we finish is this, is this the Jesus that you see? Is this the Jesus today that you taste? Is this the one that is, that is genuinely in your mind's eye when you think about it? Have you heard the word grace when we think about the word or the phrase, the throne of? Does that, does that impact you? Or even now as I've been preaching, has it maybe been actually that the, the, the Lord's been showing you, actually, do you know what? I feel like you're talking about Tom. But I haven't been going to Christ. I've actually been going to a hundred other things. And the Lord today wants to lovingly just release you and draw you into a place of absolute trust and almost to say he wants you to put your weight on him. If you put your weight on anything else, it will break. It, it won't supply. And the quicker we, we learn this in our lives, the more the more that we will be able to walk through the things he has for us.